0: Aquaculture has been around for thousands of years, but the days of throwing some aquatic organisms in a hole in the ground to watch them grow and then harvest them are long gone. The last 30 years have seen some dramatic technological improvements to the aquaculture industry, including the use of artificial intelligence to monitor everything from feed to water quality and even fish behavior to make sure they are doing okay. On this special two-part aquaculture series of Market Hunt, We bring you into the world of aquaculture and the cutting edge of the science and innovation taking place in this field. We'll interview a university professor to provide us some context on the aquaculture ecosystem. And then we'll feature a company attempting to bring the first genetically modified protein to market for human consumption in the world. Are you ready? Let's go.
1: Entrepreneurship's hard. You need to have support there.
0: We fundamentally have to learn how to live our lives differently. We can't keep going the way we have. It's not like Google can kind of move in and then take the entire market. Not yet, right? It's a real balancing act, which requires a bit of insanity, frankly. But I mean, some people are into that stuff, I guess. You know, the size of the market. That's really all you've got. We're coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. We've solved it. We've solved everything. <laughs> We've solved it all.
2: And now a message from our sponsor, i.e. Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. Watch video case studies, listen to podcasts, and much more. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub focuses on innovation ecosystems and firms who commercialize their technologies in international markets. Let's listen in to a video case study featuring Majex Technologies.
3: When we arrived in the United States for the first time, they told us that Majex is too small. It's a small company. We don't want to uh, do business with you for the moment because you didn't prove yourself. You didn't prove that you could work with international companies. We had to demonstrate that our company was was not uh, the small SME that per, that they perceived we were
2: That's Catherine Lemontang, general manager of Majex Technologies. Majex commercializes real estate software aimed at two markets: real estate investors and property managers. Majex saw the potential for their products to be sold on international markets, but with a small team of under 10 people, they had to overcome a lot of challenges. One of the
3: main challenges we faced was the hard competition of uh, United States software. Because uh, in Quebec, the advantage is the language. In French, we can sell only to French people. But outside of uh, Quebec, our software needed to be bilingual. We had to develop support, English support. We had to have employees able to speak fluently in English.
2: The Majex case is typical of many small Quebec companies facing language barriers to enter English-speaking markets. With a limited team and resources, Majex had to consider market opportunities carefully.
3: When we decide to uh, penetrate a new market, we really take time to analyze our competitors. And we won't penetrate this market if we are not able to offer a product a higher level of efficiency, of user-friendliness, of affordability. So we consider ourselves as market disruptors.
2: What other challenges did Majex face going to international markets? Find out more at the end of the program. You can also check out the Majex video case study by visiting ie-knowledgehub.ca. And now, back to the show.
0: Hi folks, Thierry Harris here. On this special two-part market hunt aquaculture series, we are diving into the world of aquaculture farming and genetic engineering. We'll learn about the journey of a Canadian innovation which began in a lab at Memorial University and went through a 25-year regulatory approvals process to become the first genetically modified protein approved for human consumption in the world. This case is as much about consumer education as it is about how products are perceived and how that perception can impact the very survival of a product in a market. We'll chat with Sylvia Wolf, President and CEO of Aqua Bounty. Wolf will discuss Aquabounty's journey of commercializing their genetically modified aqua Advantage salmon fish. But first, we'll speak with University of Guelph professor and aquaculture industry veteran Rich Machia. Machia will provide us with more context on Aquabounty's history, their early challenges getting their product approved in both the US and Canada, and help us understand the aquaculture ecosystem. We will explore some of the tremendous innovations occurring in this field. Machia has had a long history in aquaculture in Canada and around the world. You can check out his impressive bio on our episode show page. He holds an undergraduate degree in marine biology and a graduate degree in aquatic pathology. Let's get to know him a bit better in his own words.
1: I first came into contact with fish farmers when I was a graduate student, actually, helping them solve some problems at the farms because I knew a little bit about fish and water, and that began my long-term journey involved with the industry. I was self-employed for eight years in the private sector and did two small startup companies in aquatic farming technologies. And then I moved back into academia in 1987 when I took a job back at the University of Guelph to develop aquaculture education and research
0: programs. I asked Machia to provide us with a bit more context on the aquaculture industry.
1: Aquaculture is the aquatic equivalent of agriculture. So that is the farming of a very wide and diverse group of aquatic species that are produced for a variety of purposes, from human food to food ingredients to even engineered technologies where we're developing systems to be able to grow human pharmaceuticals even in in some species of fish with unique technology. Aquaculture primarily around the world is the farming of fish, shellfish, crustaceans, and aquatic plants in advanced farming-based systems that are owned by a company that are basically utilizing human intervention into most aspects of the life cycle of these animals or plants and are essentially producing biomass than to go into the human food chain in the food marketplace. So aquaculture has a direct parallel to terrestrial agriculture. Farmers own their fish or shellfish or crustaceans or plants. They breed them, they feed them, they manage disease problems. They grow them up to a market size. They sell them into the processing industry where they're developed into a number of different kinds of consumer products. And then they're marketed out to the consumer everything from institutional markets restaurants and direct to home sales so that really is aquaculture as it exists today it's practiced in virtually every country around the world we farm a couple of hundred or more different species of fish and plants and crustaceans and mollusks and the interesting part is that 30 years ago aquaculture contributed less than 5% of the world demand of seafood products in the human food market. Today, aquaculture is supplying over 50% of the world demand for seafood. And the other 50% really comes from the wild harvesting of products around the world through the commercial fishing industries. So, you know, the important to understand about aquaculture is that it is moving away from the older technologies of hunting and gathering, which is what the commercial fishing industry does, right? They go out into public waters and moving hunting and gathering to farming-based technologies. And, you know, the best example I give my students of that is that we used to supply bison by shooting them on the prairies and hunting them. Mm. Nowadays, we don't have any more wild bison that we we hunt anymore on open lands, but we now farm them, right? So you can still buy bison meat, but it's farmed. And so we're also moving aquaculture technology from hunting and gathering to farming.
0: You mentioned how the technology has innovated over the last 20 years. Give us a bit more details about how this technology has evolved and where it's at today. <laughs>
1: Farming systems, of course, require that the farmer manages reproduction, genetics, life support systems, health, engineering technologies, and virtually every one of those subdisciplines of aquaculture farms has innovated at an almost exponential rate over the last three decades around the world and also in Canada. Forty years ago, we used to dig a hole in the ground, throw a few fish in, throw a bit of, you know, waste feed in there and the fish would grow and you'd harvest out a few, send them to market. And that was basically the early generation of what we called fish farming at the time. But in the last 30 years, we have developed uh, very exquisite technologies around feeding and nutrition, for example trying to understand the very precise nutritional requirements of these animals to grow them successfully and healthily in captivity and produce a product of high quality and high taste and other texture characteristics for consumers. We have had significant advances in genetic selection and genetic engineering technologies. We've also had incredible technologies in animal health and disease management in aquaculture. So development of a better understanding of disease uh, processes in aquatic organisms, how they can be managed from a veterinary care perspective, the development of various pharmaceuticals and therapeutic agents to be able to manage animal health and captivity. Vaccine development, for example, has been a huge one in aquaculture in the last three decades to try to manage health of both fish and other organisms like shrimp in captivity water quality management has been perhaps the single biggest area of innovation in aquaculture to be able to have systems which can manage all the basic life support water quality oxygenation you know the removal of metabolic wastes from the animals in their systems unlike most terrestrial animals aquatic organisms essentially Urinate and defecate into the same environment that they live in, right? So, because they're surrounded by water, and so they urinate and defecate into that water. And so, fish farms need to be able to manage those aquatic systems to have a high level of both welfare, but a high level of life support systems for the fish. The other areas of innovation have really been in the processing side and the marketplace side. So, Aquaculture has developed a number of new and innovative products to try to encourage diversification at the retail level, to encourage consumers to consider a farmed product as an alternative to a wild harvested product. And it's hard to be able to pick just one technology where we've seen the most innovation, but I would say perhaps in life support systems, maybe has been the area of greatest development. So we've now moved from that dug hole in the ground where you threw a few fish in to very sophisticated engineering systems of closed containment where we computer monitor all the different life support systems. We have mechanical controls, artificial intelligence and artificial learning systems, computerized control of feeding. Even we have now, very smart monitoring systems of fish behavior to be able to determine perhaps when the fish are acting abnormally to mm. require veterinary intervention. So lots and lots of very sophisticated technologies being innovated in aquaculture.
0: And which ones would you say Canada are number one or number two or are in the conversation in terms of the innovation in aquaculture? Yeah.
1: That's a good question. Canada has had research scientists essentially that have added value to virtually every one of those disciplines, Mm. but perhaps the ones that we are maybe most noted for around the world would be our nutrition and feed formulation technologies. So we had some of the very early experts in nutrition and feed development in Canada. We've made great strides in this country in developing very precision feeding strategies and precision feeds for fish the other one i would say is some of our development in open ocean systems and that is some of the technologies that we're using for our net pen farming in our salmon industry in both coasts in canada have been very innovative and and very creative in trying to find solutions to problems with icing and and weather mm. in our northern climates. We have incredible engineering challenges to putting these large farms out into ocean environments with everything from tidal currents to storms to shipping traffic and everything else. So that's had a lot of innovation in Canada too. And then the other one I would say in Canada has been in the genetic side of things. Not just in the genetic engineering technologies like Aquabounty, but in the more conventional and classic genetic selection where, you know, you pick a fast-growing mother and a fast-growing father, breed them together and get fast-growing offspring and utilizing normal genetic selections. Those would be ones that I would highlight Canadian innovation.
0: Who are some of the main, you know, this innovation, as you said, has flourished in the last 40 years. Who are some of the main stakeholders in the aquaculture ecosystem that are helping support this innovation?
1: You know, first and foremost, I need to give shout out and credit to our federal government and our Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, because over the last 50 years, they have been a world leader in understanding fisheries systems and developing many of the early research innovations in nutrition, breeding, genetics, and life support technologies. And they did it initially as a way to support their own rehabilitation and restocking program. So we have for many decades attempted to rehabilitate salmon, for example, on both the West Coast and the East Coast. And so the federal government spent a lot of money in those technologies, which were all exported into aquaculture. Our federal government, through Fisheries and Oceans Canada, were some of the early leaders in investing in in research and technology development. Similar to that, though, of course, we've Had our federal research funding agencies, NSERC, probably been the biggest one which has supported all kinds of innovative research and development at universities and in private companies to develop new knowledge and develop technologies that are tailor-made for Canada. Beyond federal levels of investment, we have seen substantial investment by a number of provincial government agencies as well. In the province of Ontario, our Provincial Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs has been a long-term supporter of aquaculture research and development. We have one of the world-class research facilities for aquaculture freshwater research in Ontario that's been supported by the provincial government. And you could kind of replicate that investment across other provinces in Canada, British Columbia, many of our maritime provinces, for example, have been significant investors in both classic institutional basic research, but also in research and development and in technology transfer, which is a very important element of that, right? Once you develop the technology, it needs to be adopted by somebody. So it needs to be transferred to the private sector. And those are, of course, are very meaningful parts of training business students and others these days to understand that innovation pathway from the lab to the marketplace. We've also in Canada had some very entrepreneurial companies, Canadian born and bred. One that comes to mind is Cook Aquaculture, which is a company in Atlantic Canada, which had been involved in the commercial fishing industry in Atlantic Canada, and were one of the very early investors in aquaculture development at a large scale. They are now a very large international company that grows salmon in a few countries around the world. And they are still a kind of a family-owned company that has been a tremendous investor in the industry and, and saw the opportunity to provide food from farms where they had previously supplied that same fish product from the wild harvest fishing industry. We also in the earlier parts of Canada's development had investment from Norwegian companies that came to Canada to co-invest with the private sector here and that of course evolved and consolidation happened over long periods of time, over two or three decades or so, but we now have some very, very large companies in Canada. Maui International, M-O-W-I, Maui International is one of the world's largest salmon farming companies that are invested in Canada. And of course, you could provide many other names of companies. The other interesting piece that I'll say is that we've also seen substantial partnership and cooperations with First Nations groups in different parts of the country. They are also involved in aquaculture in many of our coastal farms and even in Ontario here. And then of course, you know, we now have a number of other companies like Aqua Bounty, which probably spent well in excess of a hundred million dollars trying to bring a technology to marketplace in the last couple of decades.
0: Let's get into AquaBounty. Could you please tell us what is AquaBounty?
1: AquaBounty is a publicly traded company which has specialized in bioengineering and genetic engineering technology in aquaculture. They began as an idea in a scientific laboratory at Memorial University where a technology was developed to try to enhance growth performance in salmon And the early entrepreneurs in Aquabounty saw the opportunity to take that technology, commercialize it, try to move it into the private sector, and essentially create a for-profit company that would produce farmed fish for the world using very sophisticated genetic engineering technologies. They essentially have the technology of both manipulating the genetics in the fish as well as growing and selling fish. So they're both a technology company as well as a fish farming company that attempts to grow food for human consumption. So they're very interesting and a perfect example of a made in Canada entrepreneurial outgrowth from a research laboratory into a private company now on the stock exchange.
0: This research that started was happening, I mean, it took a long time for them to get all the approvals that they had. And you're identifying the genetic research for the fish and then the actual aquaculture technology. Perhaps you can break those down and give us a little bit more detail about each.
1: Sure. Well, back in the 1980s, a researcher from Memorial University called Dr. Garth Fletcher was working on a genetics of what's called an antifreeze protein at the time. They were looking for ways to try to make fish more tolerant of some of the very cold water temperatures that they had in the North Atlantic. And Dr. Fletcher teamed up with another individual, Dr. Choi Hugh, at that time, who was at Memorial and then went to the University of Toronto to utilize the same technology of putting unique gene sequences Uh, of other fish species into an Atlantic salmon. And they had this idea that if they took uh, a gene from a Chinook salmon and another gene sequence from a fish called an ocean pout, that was a promoter gene it's called, and they could transplant these genes into an Atlantic salmon, they actually could produce a fish that grew more quickly than the non-genetically modified fish. Well, this was really at the time almost the stuff of science fiction where you could take genes from a chinook salmon and an ocean pout put them into an Atlantic salmon they would incorporate into the normal genetic sequence of the Atlantic salmon and it would ultimately produce a fish that grew four to five times faster than a non-transgenic fish and additionally it would also utilize food energy more efficiently than a non-transgenic fish. So this technology then could produce a faster growing and more energy efficient fish. Well that was all in the laboratory at the time. Memorial University had encouraged researchers to try to commercialize their technology at the time and so Dr. Flesher reached out and met a gentleman by the name of Elliot Entist, who essentially took the technology and attempted to commercialize it and began the very, very long-term process of trying to secure approvals for food safety and utilizing that technology in the commercial aquaculture industry. Mm -hmm. That began in 1991.
0: For more on how Entist spun off AquaBounty, check out the Nature Magazine article link in the episode notes. It's a fascinating story. Back to Machia.
1: Well, it took all the way through until 2015. So from 1991 to 2015 of submitting applications on the technology and food safety and environmental safety to both the US Food and Drug Administration as well as the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And it actually took until 2015 where the technology was finally approved and considered to be safe for use in the human food market. That was in the United States. And then one year later, 2016, the technology was approved in Canada by the Canadian government. So a very, very long-term undertaking that cost tens of millions of dollars essentially for that company to try to ultimately bring that scientific discovery to the marketplace. It was the very first example in North America and Europe of an animal species that was genetically engineered being approved for human consumption. Now we have had a number of other plant-based species which are genetically engineered that are already in the food marketplace, but there has never been another animal species approved for human consumption. From 2015 to 2019, AquaBounty then attempted to both license the technology and also then utilize it themselves to build production growing facilities for salmon so they now have a couple of production growing facilities and entered into the actual farming industry themselves too so they really are an interesting technology development company that actually moved into farming as well and so they are there today attempting to make a profit off of this technology that essentially was developed 40 years ago, back in the research labs of Memorial University. So it's an incredible story. They have not been successful yet to make profit off of the technology, and they're still trying, though, and kind of utilizing now the stock market and entrepreneurial and investors to try to drive it to the next level.
0: A couple of mind blowing points here that Professor Machia just mentioned. Number one, this was the first ever genetically modified animal protein to be approved for human consumption in the world. Number two, it took 25 years from the initial scientific discovery at Newfoundland and Labrador's Memorial University to commercialize the product. Remember, folks, we'll have an interview with Aquabounty president and CEO Sylvia Wolfe coming up in the next Market Hunt episode of this two-part aquaculture series. In order to approve the technology, both the United States and Canadian federal agencies required AquaBounty to restrict farming of the salmon to land-based farms. The issue has been a contentious one. Environmental consortiums, composed of fishermen's associations, ecology groups, and Indigenous First Nations, have sued regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Canada on the potential risk of contaminating wild salmon populations with genetically modified fish. We have more on these cases in the episode show links. With much respect to all sides involved, we are not here to discuss the pros and cons of GMOs for human consumption, or the potential impacts on wild populations, but to understand the challenges and opportunities of aquaculture innovation and how Aquabounty is undertaking the commercialization of this novel protein. Bottom line is, Aquabounty needed to find a way to grow these salmon in self-contained land-based farms away from wild salmon populations. Machia elaborates on the impact of the FDA decisions on aqua bounty.
1: Part of the regulatory approvals of both the U.S. government and Canadian government were done with the proviso and the restriction that these genetically engineered salmon would only be grown in closed containment facilities on land. And that was very different than how nine percent of the salmon around the world are grown because most of the salmon that are grown in virtually every country around the world are farmed in floating net pens out in ocean environments right so they're in public waterways out in the atlantic and pacific ocean in many countries around the world And one of the challenges, of course, of the open ocean net pen farming is that if a fish escapes for some reason, it has the potential to breed with a native fish or a wild fish and therefore transfer some of those exotic genes in this case that are in the aqua bounty salmon to wild fish. And that's considered to have a too high environmental risk. So both governments of the United States and Canada said you're approved to farm these for human consumption, but they need to be done in virtually closed containment facilities to prevent escapement. So that technology is called recirculation aquaculture systems, where essentially you have a large building and inside that building is a whole variety of interconnected technologies to manage water quality, to provide all the basic life support systems for the fish. And they're all done within a contained environment so that no fish can escape into the wild. So Aquabounty now is farming fish in these closed containment aquaculture systems, which in and of itself is an emerging technology in aquaculture. It it is being develop now on a sort of a very large scale around the world as some companies are attempting to move their production from these open ocean net pen environments to these closed containment systems. And they do that for a number of reasons. Of course, in an open ocean net pen, you're contending with everything from storms, diseases that are in wild animals that can transfer to farm fish, you're in public waterways and shipping and navigation. We actually had a Norwegian submarine this past year in the summer of 2020 collided with a salmon farm out in, in ocean oh waters. Goodness. And so this presents a fairly high level of risk and, and looking to move the salmon farming onto land, onto private property in closed containment. Aqua Bounty themselves are not really developing the closed containment technology. They're utilizing those systems that have been developed over the last 30 years by a number of other companies. For Aqua Bounty, of course, they have no choice. If they're going to grow these fish, farm them, and sell them for human consumption, they have to be in closed containment. So, Aqua Bounty as a company is utilizing really two separate technological innovations in their company one that they developed which is the genetically engineered salmon and the other one is a farming systems technology that have been developed by other companies around the world to be able to grow them in closed containment virtually anywhere they want. The important final piece of this puzzle I guess is that Aqua Bounty is looking to be able to farm fish closer to the final marketplace for their product. So then that eliminates obviously longer term shipping and transportation, reduces the carbon footprint because you don't have fish being shipped in trucks and airplanes long distances, and also allows the potential to deliver a fresher product more quickly to that final marketplace. So it's really an integrated strategy utilizing genetic engineering utilizing very sophisticated closed containment recirculation technologies and attempting to exploit a marketplace by being closer to the final product demand. At the same time, globally around the world, many other salmon companies are exploring investment into closed containment recirculation systems as well. So you see this interesting kind of parallel course of the development of two technologies. And in AquaBounty's case, now one relies on the other exclusively to be able to penetrate and be in the market. AquaBounty fish is called the AquaDvantage salmon. So that's the trademark name of the genetically engineered fish. So this is really the front of the pack. This is the high risk taking company that has spent tens of millions of dollars to try to bring a brand new novel product through the regulatory system and try to bring it into the food marketplace and essentially to try to provide solutions to farming salmon that will be able to add profit to the farm and also to be able to farm it more sustainably longer term. The other important piece of the equation and something that's important for your listeners to understand is that the Aqua Advantage salmon basically provides two advantages to farmers. The fish grow more quickly, and they also utilize food energy more quickly. Those are two huge opportunities for farmers. And if we looked at other examples in terrestrial agriculture, if you could bring a technology to, say, the swine industry or the beef industry, the poultry industry that could offer much more rapid growth and much more efficient feed utilization those things would be considered panaceas to solving huge market opportunities for farms right these are tremendous opportunity advantages for farmers but of course they come at significant challenges as well because of that same technology
0: The typical innovation journey from university labs to commercialize their activities into fully-fledged companies, you need to have a market, you need to have some investment. You have uh, described a very mature industry with small and medium-sized companies being merged into international conglomerates over here. So there is an opportunity to find new markets for the innovations that justifies the millions and tens of millions, and in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment.
1: Here's another take-home message, though, about this innovation from lab to marketplace. One of the things which most often gets overlooked in innovation technologies is the regulatory and policy environment and the social acceptability of bringing that innovation to the marketplace. Mm. So the model that we've talked about around Aquabounty is perhaps an excellent example of that. That technology was developed in the 1980s. It was attempted to be commercialized first in the early 1990s and it essentially took close to three decades to actually get it through the regulatory process to be approved for use by an adopting company. And this is often overlooked by entrepreneurs. You know, They think they develop something new and next year they're going to be making all kinds of money <laughs> when they you know, bring the product to the marketplace. But in fact, this regulatory Ecosystem that they have to work through for a lot of new products is something that's really underappreciated. The other main take home message that I want to leave for the students is the social uh, and cultural fit for the technology and how that might impact adoption and then ultimate success or failure in the marketplace. And again, the Aqua Bounty Salmon. Is perhaps the best example I can think of for that. That technology, essentially now, is not widely considered to be an appropriate technology in the aquaculture marketplace. There has been significant pushback and rejection by the consumer marketplace, everything from they don't feel it's safe for human consumption to worrying about the ethics and morality of intervening in the genetic composition of a living organism to produce this animal for human use only. Mm -hmm. And the other big part of it, which was really unseen at the time the technology was developed, and that is that even the aquaculture industry itself has not embraced the technology. And here's an interesting thing to consider. If I came to the aquaculture industry 20 years ago and said, I can offer you a solution which will allow you to grow fish four to five times faster and save money on food energy, I would have been considered to be otherworldly in my ability to solve one of the biggest problems in aquaculture, and that's fast growth. Mm. That's exactly the benefit of the aqua bounty salmon. Mm. But you can look across virtually every industry association in Europe and in Canada and even the United States, and most of them are not embracing the technology. Why? Because it's considered that it's a potential negative impact in the marketplace to the consumers that we now have. We have marketed farmed fish based on their healthfulness, based on the fact that they are unadulterated based on the fact that they have you know high levels of omega three and omega six fatty acids, and they're they're good for you to eat. They have very high quality protein, low saturated fats in them. And all of a sudden now, You're going to bring this technology that consumers go, well, I don't really want to eat that fish now because you've adulterated the genetics. So interestingly, it's an incredible solution that has never been embraced by the industry itself that it's been there to be an advantage to. And that is because of social acceptability has never been realized for that technology yet. Hmm. In fact, it's probably the single biggest barrier to the technology having been widely implemented and and these are perhaps the two most important take home messages that I would give entrepreneurs and innovators, and that is understand that it's not just a potentially a long time from innovation to marketplace, but you also have significant potential barriers around regulatory environments and also social acceptability. It's just incredible to think of where we might've been today had that technology been approved and adopted 20 years ago compared to where we are today, where only one company has it. They basically produce, only produce a very small quantity of fish yeah. and they're still at the beginning of the you know adoption pathway, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: It's gonna be a fascinating journey. There's another big thing for entrepreneurs is if you don't have any competition out there yet, Maybe there's a reason for that. <laughs> so, well, you well know, perhaps. Yeah. The
1: the competitive environment you talk about is actually bearing down on AquaBounty at a high speed these days because we mm. have two emerging technologies in what's called the gene editing area and in the CRISPR technology, if you kind of look at that. Yes, we do. Um, yeah. So those, those approaches actually will have the ability to very rapidly produce genetically engineered animals and fish in particular in this case to be able to do a lot of other things other than just grow fast so you may be able to use gene editing for example to have a fast-growing fish which is resistant to certain disease issues and that's sort of an interesting one because the regulatory system for those technologies is not yet well established, and they may be more quickly approved because of uh, a different perspective on whether they're safe or not. Because there's no novel genes put into them, right? So, yeah, yeah. so aquabounty may be the first casualty in these sophisticated genetic technologies being outcompeted by other ones, which can be more rapidly put through the regulatory process and perhaps not have all the same safety protocols on them that AquaBounty does. Now, yeah. I, I'm not saying my crystal ball is any better than anybody else's, nope. but yeah. it, it, it's, it's just an interesting <laughs> one about about competition from emerging technologies.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, uh, yeah. That labeling was another huge issue uh, that they had because nobody was clear on how to label this type of fish. That took them years to just get the eggs across the border into the United States so that they were able to go ahead and commercialize this there. So, well,
1: yeah. The labeling one also, I mean, incredibly interesting story for a student to chew into because, you know, we require labeling. On regulations where it relates to either safety issues or nutrition issues, right? So then you have certain labeling requirements, but there really isn't a good justification to label a genetically engineered fish because it's considered to be safe. And from a nutritional point of view, it's exactly the same as a non-genetically engineered fish. Right. But consumers were the ones who said, we want to know if we're buying a genetically engineered fish or not, so that we can make the decision to buy it or not buy it, right? So now you've got this interesting paradigm shift between a labeling system, which was predicated on safety and nutrition, to now a labeling demand because of consumer expectations about what they want to see on the label. And of course, you can see that you know, might be an advantage or disadvantage because in some cases, if you label the fish as being genetically engineered, it might not impact the marketplace at all. But in other places like in Canada, we've had people that said, we're going to picket the grocery stores that have genetically engineered salmon on them. And they would know that if it had a label on it, right? Definitely. And so- the grocery store might say, wow, we're not going to carry those because if we have to label them, then we're going to have all kind of controversy in front of our store because of it. So labeling is another whole incredible discipline to talk about. And
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. Some of the big misconceptions that are out there about aquaculture in general, you've listed a few of them already.
1: Yeah. There's a few general and common misconceptions about aquaculture. Uh, and farmed fish in particular. One is that they're not safe for human consumption. There have been a number of stories over the years about you know, unregulated use of pharmaceutical products in aquaculture and various chemical contaminants getting into the fish, that sort of thing. But that's a misconception. They're very safe for human consumption, but commonly many people think, I'm not gonna buy farmed fish because they're not safe. Another big misconception is that all fish farms are highly polluting to the environment and that they're an ecological disaster, right? So if you just Google aquaculture, some of the first leaks that'll come up are from the antagonists who talk about the environmental negative impacts of aquaculture. Again, a very wide misconception. Most of our farms are very environmentally sustainable and are improving all the time. One of the other big misconceptions is the one that consumers and many chefs have, for example, and that is farmed products are inferior to the wild-caught ones, mm-hmm. right? So we have many chefs, for example, that said, I don't want to purchase a farm salmon, I want only want one that's a wild-caught salmon because... For some reason, they think the quality is better. Yeah. And that's a misconception, in fact, and is changing pretty rapidly. We have now a number of professional chefs who are leading in trying to show the high quality and some of the different hedonistic traits and qualities of farmed fish over, over wild ones, right? And of course, the other big thing is that one of the advantages of aquaculture is that it is reducing the pressure on wild populations. And, you know, we know globally that we're wiping out and over-harvesting many of the world's wild population of animals, and farming provides a solution to that.
0: If you had a chance to get some business students or entrepreneurs studying aquaculture, what kinds of things do you think that they should be studying?
1: I love this question. They need to drill into understanding food economics okay so economic students you know and business students kind of understand broadly about things but the food economics is a very different ecosystem than understanding say economics in the automobile industry or whatever so the food economics is one the impact of trade and trade policies on our food systems and that includes things like supply management for example right so you know, some of our products we can import and export freely in Canada, other ones we have geographical restriction on them because of supply management. And so for business students to understand the complexities of trade, and that's both import and export, and programs around supply management, which we have in some parts of our terrestrial agriculture industry. So our dairy industry is supply managed, our poultry industry is supply managed, you know, and how these things impact trade. So those are very important business students. The other piece that um, I find most economics and business people don't understand and where they need additional exposure is to the regulatory and policy environment that all new products have to succeed in right so, and you know I think we talked about an incredible example of that in Aquaboni, but you could make the same case if you developed a new technology around a, a car technology, for example, yeah, uh, that would have to cars. go through all kind of regulatory <laughs> and approvals, right? So yeah. most most business and economic students they, they don't understand that environment, and that's a great one to get extra training in.
0: That's all for today's episode. We've had the pleasure of listening to Rich Machia, professor in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Sylvia Wolf, president and CEO of AquaBounty, the company at the tip of the spear, bringing genetically modified salmon to the market. Remember to check out the case study questions on the episode show page. So much to discuss. You can always send us your questions and suggestions at solutions at ie-knowledgehub.ca.
2: And now a final word from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. If you are an education professional looking for course content an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. Let's pick up where we left off for Magex Technologies, a small real estate management software company founded in 2003.
3: The company was founded in 2003, but recently it was sold to a bigger group in France of many IT companies. So if we lack competencies internally, I can ask to the group, to to borrow a resource or just to, to have access to their knowledge. For example, we outsource programming and uh, we also have access to a, a larger network.
2: An issue many small companies face when being bought up by larger ones is that internal efficiency controls are put in place to make sure the operation is running smoothly.
3: The change in ownership brought Magix to review all its structure, the internal structure, because before, it wasn't uh, structured. The main change is, is that now we have to plan, execute, control our activities to be able to uh, give report to the stakeholders, to be able to justify all that we want. Before, we didn't measure our results. We were doing it and, uh, did it work? Oh yeah, I think it worked. Okay, we will do it again. Uh, or, um, no, this time it didn't work. We didn't know why. So now we are looking for the why.
2: The added structure has helped MAGEX build more robust strategies when pursuing international markets. Much of these are based on partnerships with software distributors. Julian Gagnon, MAGEX Business Development Director, elaborates.
1: We got the uh, attention of a few uh, actors in the industry in California. From there, we built a partnership. We established that we should communicate on on a daily basis and share our sales activities on both sides of the the borders and make sure the success that we were having on one side, we wanted to duplicate it on the other side.
2: You've been listening to segments of the Megex Technologies Video Case Study. Learn more about software product adaptation, international marketing, and branding, as well as building a positive team culture by watching their full case available for free at ie-knowledgehub.ca.
0: Market Hunt is produced by Cartouche Media in collaboration with Seratone Studios in Montreal and Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa. Market Hunt is part of the IE Knowledge Hub Network. Funding for this program comes from the Social Sciences and Humanities Resource Council of Canada. Executive Producers, Hamid Etamat, McGill University, Des Faculty of Management, and Hamid Motaghi, Université de Québec en Outaouais. Associate Producer, José Orlando Montes, Université de Québec à Montréal. Technical Producers, Simon Petraki, Seroton Studio, and Lisa Carrido, Pop-Up Podcasting. Show Consultant, JP Davidson. Artwork by Melissa Jondro, voiceover Katie Harrington. You can check out the IE Knowledge Hub case study at ie-knowledgehub.ca. For Market Hunt, I'm Thierry Harris. Thanks for listening.